take not just to get to the edge of the kingdom, but into it. And, and that question, I think, is, is, begins to be answered in the three little vignettes in this passage. It's kind of a 3D look at the kingdom of God. Um, the first has to do with a conundrum about the kingdom. Uh, the second, I think, is, has to do with what it looks like to come against the kingdom, to oppose it. And finally, what it looks like to come into the kingdom. Uh, so inquiries are ended, answering isn't, questions have ceased, but confrontation hasn't. Uh, of course, Jesus has been confronted a lot since coming into the city, and, and I think at the heart of all these con confrontations, just kind of uh, this basic question, you know, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Jesus? You're acting like a king. But now Jesus is kind of turning the tables. He's doing some confronting to, to actually answer that, to show them, here's the kind of king I am. Here's the kind of kingdom I rule. So he puts a conundrum in front of them. He, he actually cites the official position of the scribes that the Christ is the son of David. Uh, and of course, that position is absolutely correct. It's biblical. The Bible is clear that the Christ will be the son of David. And, and Jesus believes that teaching too. So when he asks, you know, essentially, how can the scribes say this? He's not disagreeing with the position. He's prodding. He's saying, you know, Let's tease it out. It's almost as if, how can they say only this? Of course, Jesus has done this kind of thing before where he, where he affirms uh, a biblical truth, but he says, you know, how can you, how can you limit it to just this one principle? How, how can you not see the fullness of it? So, you know, for example, when he affirms that the prophet Elijah must come before the Messiah, that's, a, that's a, the official position. It's a biblical one. It's true. The religious leaders affirm it, but Jesus prods them to show that, in fact, Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, explaining that when he did come, he, not, he was not only not recognized as Elijah, but that they set out and succeeded to destroy him. So, so here Jesus again, does this again. He raises the biblical truth that the Messiah will come from the line of David. Amen. Selah. Um, and yet, he wants to tease it out. And, and it's critical to see how he teases this, out, teases this truth out. It's not late-night dorm conversation. It's not faculty lounge, you know, speculation. Uh, he teases it out by going to the very scriptures that they're citing. Um, and, and this is really important. I think just what he's doing here. Because, you see, it's possible to affirm elements of scripture while at the same time kind of missing the essence. So, you know, I could, for example, describe to you an experience I had this summer where I stood in a building uh, in front of a wall. I stared at a vertically hung canvas that had upon it an arrangement of oil-based pigments. That's all true. Uh, every element of that is true, but what I'm leaving out is that I stood one foot away from a Van Gogh, right? That's the fullness. That's the essence. So, so we're dealing with, with, with a dynamic here, I think, which persists in our day in which someone can kind of hold up the Bible, teach from it, insist upon it, and not only miss the truth of it, but arrive in a position where you actually stand in opposition to it. It's crazy. Elijah's coming. You know, but when, when Elijah actually shows up, they not only don't recognize him, they kill him. 
You know, and the greatest example of that is here's Jesus, the Messiah, the King, and they don't recognize him. Even though the, the scriptures are replete with information about what this kind of Messiah will be like, who will be like. So, Jesus goes to the Bible. Uh, he's referring to the covenant with David. Um, the background of this, rather, is the covenant of, with David, uh, which has this at its heart. When your days are fulfilled, this is God's promise to David, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You know, that's the background. That's the backdrop of the son of David. Um, and again, the covenant affirms what the scribes affirm, that the Messiah will come from the family tree of David. But Jesus is going, there's much, much more to this promise. And the first thing to say about the covenant is that, you know, it is that. It is a promise. Promises are made to be fulfilled. And since it's God making the promise, fulfillment is a certainty. Uh, and Jesus wants to dig in to the fullness of the promise in order to understand what will actually be fulfilled. So certainly, the Messiah will be a king descending from David's line, and yet the covenant encompasses much, much more than that. A descendant of David, a king like David, except a king, you know, much greater than David. So Jesus wants to take in, you know, the scope of the promise and the specificity of it, not by grabbing onto rabbinical tradition or seeking it out from some other source, but going, let's get more into the Bible. So he makes a beeline to the Psalms, Psalm 110 to be specific, a Psalm of David. It's like he's saying, you know, if, if, if you really want to understand the son of David stuff, let's go to the source. What did David say? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let's think about this promise, how he thought about it as the one who received it directly from God. And, and in Psalm 110, David says this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the, this is the conundrum. If the Messiah is to be nothing more than David's heir, merely one more king from the royal line, even, even if he's a really great king, why does David call him Lord? That's the conundrum. And it's a conundrum because it doesn't normally work that way. Uh, this, in, in fact, descending from someone is, is almost the opposite because be, to be a descendant in some sense is, is to be inferior. If for no other reason than, you know, uh, the fact that the person who comes after you, as, you know, maybe you remind your children, owes their existence to you, right? So what David says in Psalm 110 isn't really the way it's supposed to work. I mean, we got a lot of parents in here, I know, grandparents. You know, how many of you ever called your son or your, your granddaughter Lord, right? We, we don't do that. Because in some sense, to be the forebear is to be the superior, certainly if you're the greatest of Israel's kings. And so David, you know, universally acknowledged as the greatest of the kings of Israel, the recipient of the covenant promise, calls this son who comes from his line, Lord. It turns out that the son of David is not merely his son. He is, he's much more than his son. He is that, but he's much more than that. He's called in that psalm, Adonai, the Lord. 
But then the question is, why, why would David say something like this? Because like Jesus, David looked to the Word of God. David listened to the Word of God. He paid attention to the specificity of it, the scope of it. David isn't riffing. He's relying on God's promise, which said that the one who would descend from him would would rule over something much greater than Israel, Uh, that he would would rule over a house of nations that would be built, Uh, that his reign wouldn't be like a normal regency which would last a lifetime, but instead would last forever. And because that's true, because David knows that the one to come from his line will be greater than him, that's why he calls him Lord. And with that, Jesus turns his attention to what kind of king this is and what kind of kingdom he will rule. And it kind of seems like he's changing the subject here, but he's not. He's still talking about king. He's still talking about kingdom, except this time he's describing what it looks like to come against it, to oppose it. Up to now, you know, Jesus has gotten into confrontations with this scribe or that religious leader, but this is the first time he kind of lumps them all into one class. Uh, And he says, these are the kinds of people who who like to walk around in in their long robes, uh, like the greetings in the marketplaces, uh, have got the best seats in the synagogue, the place of honor at feasts, and for a pretense, make these really long prayers. And, And... you know, just to be clear, there's nothing inherently wrong with a long robe and, and being greeted and having a good seat and making a long prayer. Uh, but, but Jesus isn't just describing behavior. He is denouncing them on the basis of what it looks like to oppose the kingdom. And, and in verse 40, uh, you, get, you get a sense of the seriousness of it because he says, because of this, they will not only be condemned, but they will receive the greater condemnation. But the question is, you know, again, you get back to it and you go, what, what do long robes, being greeted, having good seats, praying long prayers have to do with opposing the kingdom? And, and I think it is simply this, that all of this has in common for those who are entrusted with bringing people to the Lord, with commending life in Him, with giving glory to God, with as, you know, as our confession says, giving glory to God and enjoying Him forever, those very people in what is being described here, are determined to keep themselves at the center, not the Lord. Are concerned with their own glory, not the Lord's. This is the stuff of self-glory. And and here's the thing about glory. If you're determined to get it for yourself, you are robbing it from the one who actually deserves it, the Lord. So they slip into clerical robes in the same way someone might slip into an exotic car. You know, for the cachet, the attention, the respect that comes with a showy accessory like that, they bask in the attention and feed on the honor that comes their way in receiving greetings in the marketplace. Their prayers aren't God-directed. They're not marked by repentance and praise. But, you know, Jesus calls them a pretense. Uh, That is to say, they're kind of a show of one's own piety, of theological knowledge, of clerical authority. It's as if the the words they're saying, you know, are are uttered mostly so that people will be impressed with them. And and all of that, it's like Jesus is saying, you want to know what it looks like to oppose the king and his kingdom? It looks like that. You know, on the one hand, nothing is given up ever for the glory of God or the good of neighbor. And on the other hand, everything is taken, hoarding, 
glory for oneself. You know, it's like the old joke about the conversation with a narcissist who, you know, kind of says, well, enough about me. What do you think of me? <laughs> right? They go to the party. They take the seat of honor. They go into God's house. They take the best seat. Right? And now, look, we're 21st century Americans. Uh, there's some flavor of this passage where it's like, yeah, I love it when Jesus takes jabs at these guys, at these religious leaders, these puffed up, hypocritical people. You know, any movie we watch, you know, and there's a pastor in it, you know, you know, he's going to end up being a fool or a hypocrite or a psychopath, or maybe all three. But, but I, I just, it, it's, I get into that, it's important to understand that Jesus is not working within that kind of trope here. Uh, he, he is denouncing that which everyone believed to be righteousness, which was admired, you know, which was representative of the kingdom, you know, all this religiosity and this power and this prestige, you know, that the disciples would have been like, what are you talking about? Except Jesus is saying, you know, that what you have imagined to be the righteousness of the kingdom, I'm telling you is rebellion against it. Which is why Jesus not only denounces these leaders, he issues a warning to his followers. Um, the whole thing begins with the word beware, right? Uh, it's a warning, fundamentally. And, and I think warnings, you know, are only meaningful uh, to the degree that we're susceptible of the thing that's being warned of. It's why we tell our kids, look both ways when you cross the street, because they cross streets. So, you know, you could warn me all day long about, you know, poison dart frogs or skydiving or Japanese blowfish sushi, but, you know, I'm not susceptible to that stuff. I don't have plans to be hiking through a South American jungle or jumping out of an airplane or eating, you know, high-end sushi in Tokyo. But if you were to warn me about, you know, driving down Cerritos, <laughs> right, eating too much barbecue, you know, I'm all ears. Because I'm susceptible to that. So Jesus says, beware. Look out. You know, your life may depend on it. Have a keen eye for this stuff, for religious self-righteousness. And again, I think he warns people, warns his people about this way of thinking about righteousness. You know, that's what we're trafficking in here, right? He, he wants them to think about righteousness in a totally different way, for the, for the simple reason that they're so dang susceptible to it, and so are we. We're just easily bamboozled into imagining that this is where it's at, that this is the stuff of the kingdom. The power, the position, the pretense, the legalism, the rules, the going through the motions. You know, I don't know if you remember that line from the movie A Few Good Men when the lawyer asked the general, you know, if a soldier under his command was in danger, and the general says yes, and the lawyer follows up and says, you know, mortal danger, and the general goes, is there any other kind? And Jesus here is warning of mortal danger. Maybe especially to people like we've got in here this morning, and I'm one of them, I'm the chief among them, among the chief among them, who are, you know, sitting in the pews on a Sunday morning listening to a sermon you know, instead of worshiping at the church of the Coiled Springs, that's a bed, by the way, drinking coffee, you know, this is deadly stuff. 
It's deadly not only to us, it is deadly to people around us. It is toxic to Santa Fe. It's toxic to this world because it communicates that life is found in religiosity, in self-righteousness, in rules. And by the way, most people sniff it out. You know, that life is not found in the good news of Jesus, in ongoing, repentant, grace-relishing reliance on the Lord by faith from which obedience ensues, out of gratitude, without concern of self. Of course, there's no shortage of things to lament in this day and age when it comes to the clergy, um, the sexual, the financial scandals, the character failures, the abuse of authority, and all the rest have become, you know, so normal as to barely notice it anymore. Jesus, help. But again, I think it's worth pointing out that what Jesus is deriding here, as lamentable as all that is, he, is, he isn't deriding or warning of clerical scandals or crackpot preachers. He is talking about the presence and the persistence and power of leaders and ministries that hum along very nicely with all the form of religiosity, with all the piety, even as they deny the power and the presence of the king and keep people out of the kingdom. Keep them from the real glory in the gospel. There's a parallel passage in Matthew 23 where Jesus pronounces woe on the religious leaders saying, you know, I just think that central line of the whole thing is he says this, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. There's so much to say about that, but I just want to consider it for a second that the leaders that slam the door of the kingdom are those who refuse to enter into it themselves because it requires a repentance and a self-forgetting and a glorying all in Christ and a denying the self. You know, so it's not like they're gatekeepers. Like they're in but won't, other, won't let others in. They won't go in and they keep others out at the same time. These, this, this is the kind of leader that doesn't savor and enjoy the gospel for themselves. This is the kind of leader that refuses repentance and faith. That doesn't glory in Jesus. And that has the effect of shutting others out as well. That's what's deadly, a surface religiosity with death underneath, gleaming whitewashed tombs, counterfeit glory, a form of godliness, a penumbra of piety that shuts you out of the kingdom all while deluding you into thinking you've arrived. Beware, look out. So Jesus is saying that the real danger and the real scandal is how rarely any of it's even recognized as scandalous. How this is for so many, so many, just a regular old Sunday morning. Nothing falls apart. Everything seems to be thriving. No one's making headlines for the wrong reasons. There's charismatic leadership with great resumes. They're great speakers. Maybe they've written a book. Maybe they've got some extra letters behind their name, have some community and cultural cachet. There's butts and seats, activity, buildings, programs. And in the end, that's the glory, which is no glory at all. Of course, I want to be careful here because they're godly people and gospel-loving people who are also impressive. 
There are great gospel-centered churches that are large and have great buildings and lots of people and great activities and programs, but the difference is they're centered on the glory of God and the greatness of the gospel. So if the building got hit by a tornado and the pastor retires and the programs change, what persists in the church is glorying in Jesus Christ. So we can be glad for good gifts that God bestows on his church in whatever form they take, but never forgetting where the actual glory is. Glory that works to the good of a community so that there is a lifestyle built around the gospel, the substance of it. Repentance and faith aren't old news, but it's a lifestyle. Love for one another, lifestyle. Love for God's word. Love for the community to which he has called us. Zeal that the Lord get the glory for all of it. Zeal for that. There is nothing more serious for the community than that. And there's nothing more serious for the community of Santa Fe than that. Jesus warns us because we're susceptible. And the way he puts it is nothing short of breathtaking because he goes on to describe the danger of a showy righteousness of misdirected praise as ultimately becoming murderous. You see, when God doesn't get the glory, people get hurt, especially the most vulnerable among us. Jesus says, widows' houses are devoured. That is to say, when he, when he speaks of the widow, he is speaking of the weakest, most helpless and needy of society getting crushed and consumed because when godliness is construed in, in terms of performance, the weak the poor, the sinful become prey. Their weakness and their struggle and their sinfulness, instead of something to come alongside and minister to and sympathize with and have solidarity in and share the struggles, that becomes intolerable. No room for that. You see, Jesus is still teaching about the kingdom and what it means that he is king. And every kingdom has enemies, but the surprising thing about this kingdom is that the enemies aren't identified as unclean Gentiles or Roman overlords, not rebellious outsiders, but religious insiders. Pillars of the community, community leaders, pastors, professors, prayerful people in the synagogue, in the temple, people who feed on being commended and congratulated at every turn by everyone who crosses their path. And again, the devastating verdict is that they will receive the greater condemnation. They've been entrusted with this responsibility to bring people to the Lord, and all they do is say, uh-uh, you're not going there, you're coming to me. And again, this, has, this had to leave people scratching their heads because it not only gets you thinking, if you're really thinking about it, if you're really paying attention, um, it not only gets you thinking about those people, it's got to get you thinking about yourself. Like, if the most dutifully religious people on the planet receive the greater condemnation, what hope could there be for someone like me? Just a regular person. Jesus, I think, anticipates the question, and he answers that, not with a proposition, but he shows them a person. He's seated across from the temple treasury where there was this collection box for people to put their money in to support the temple and its worship, and people are lined up to do that. Um, and this was a place in the temple where people really put themselves on display. Uh, you know, we're told there were many rich people who put in large sums, and you kind of go, well, how do we know what they're putting in? You know, and in that line is a poor widow who, 
you know, um, the, the poorest of the poor, and you kind of wonder, how do we know what, what she's putting in? Um, you know, this widow put in, uh, we're told, um, basically a penny, two little coins that amount to a penny. I don't know how you think about pennies, but, you know, if I'm walking on the ground and I look and see a penny on the ground, you know, Lord knows where it's been. You know, my back's a little stiff. It's not really worth bending over <laughs> to pick it up. And that's what this widow puts in. Something that, that maybe most of us in here, in just raw financial terms, would consider worthless. I mean, when I was a kid, you could get a, you know, you could put, there were like vending machines where you, you could put like a gumball, you get it for a penny. There's none of that anymore. How do, you know, how do we know what everyone's giving in? Well, in, in, in this giving in the temple, it was a public act. You'd line up and you'd put your money into what was called a shofar chest, Shofar like the ram's horn, and the offering was shaped like that. It was shaped like a trumpet so that when the coins would go down the bell of the trumpet, it would make a noise. You know, and the larger the gift, the bigger the noise. So you, you weren't really seeing what was given. You were hearing it, though. Uh, so when the rich gave, you know, you know, everyone celebrated. You know, and then comes along the widow, the kind of person he has just said, get devoured by self-righteousness. With her barely, you know, her tink, tink, barely audible, barely noticeable. But Jesus notices it. And he seizes on this act as what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God. You want to know what it looks like? Here it is. He asks a question, you know, of all the people queuing up in that line, who's the most generous? And the, the shocking answer, the surprise, is it's not the person who's going to get the thank you note from the pastor. It's the, it's the poor widow who's the most generous of them all. Je Jesus says she gave the most because while the wealthy gave out of their abundance, she gave out of her poverty. Uh, while their giving fits this pattern of accruing to the glory, their own glory, hers was given out of a concern for the glory of God. So sure, in raw terms, she gave a, a fraction of what the others gave, but in real terms, she gave so much more. She gave her life. And, you know, I, again, we love the underdog stories here. You know, I just want to say this isn't morality tale. You know, he's not teaching about the wickedness of the rich and the nobility of the poor. Jesus is instead showing, you know, I think that real generosity, where it originates from, doesn't originate from the wealthy or the widow, but from the Lord, from the King. That's the beauty behind her giving. She's giving with an understanding that, that I'm a beneficiary of that generosity. That's what's at work in her giving. That's what enables her to do something like show this kind of generosity, to give away her whole life because she has apparently a deep heart-level conviction that the generosity of the Lord toward her is so lavish, His grace is so abundant that I can give away my life to Him fully and unreservedly entrust myself to His care. That's the generosity. The widow doesn't revel in her own piety. She doesn't rely on her own rewards that might accrue to her from the shofar chest, you know, ringing out. She doesn't rely on, on her own abundance she imagines she has in reserve. She lives on the good pleasure of the abundance of her Lord.
That's kingdom life. No one else notices, but Jesus does, and he cherishes this, and he commends it. She is, is an example of what it looks like to come into the kingdom. It's important to notice Jesus doesn't state this as a lesson for the crowd. Mark says that, that once he saw this, he huddled up. He, he called his disciples around him. He tells them, you know, that of all the people on the line, the widow gave the most. And it makes you wonder why this particular teaching is so pointed and, and focused on his disciples. And I think it's for this reason that these are the foundational and the first in a long line of gospel ministers. You know, called to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And Jesus wants to huddle them up so that they will cherish and cling to what they've witnessed and understand that they serve at the king's pleasure, that, that he's the generous one, that he's the life of their people. The kingdom life would be marked by turning from trust in oneself to trust in the king so that, so that the Lord would get all the glory, so that, so that we'd live out of his abundance and quiet trust and a giving away, losing life in order to gain it sort of way, knowing that in the truest sense, we're all poor widows. And here's the thing, what what was seen in that little moment of people queuing by the temple would come to be seen supremely on the cross, supremely, because Jesus is the ultimate giver. His is the generosity. He gave out of his poverty that we would have riches. He's the only one who actually fulfilled the law and loved the Lord with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength and neighbor as himself keeping the commandment that we could only break continually all the time, that that righteousness of his would would become ours. We'd receive it. Jesus gave away glory that we would enter into and enjoy the glory of the king. Jesus isn't just one more king in a long line of kings. He's king of kings. He's David's Lord, and he's our Lord. He's David's Savior, and he's ours. He, He didn't slip into fancy robes that we would be impressed by him, but was stripped of glory that we would be redeemed. He didn't revel in honorifics, but was despised and derided that we would come to know honor ourselves, that we would receive it from him, that we'd receive an adoption where we're not just citizens, but we're sons, we're daughters. He didn't take the best seat, but he left the throne, taking the form of a servant that we would be partakers of his grace and that we would have a seat at, the, at his table. You want to know what real glory is? You want to come into real riches and receive real honor? You want to enter the kingdom and know the freedom and forgiveness on offer from God and king? Then receive the generosity of the king. Quit turning from it. Shun sham glory. Turn from the empty resources we've been duped into thinking of as abundance. And trust him with your life because he served you by giving his entire life for you so that we would have a seat at this table. Let's pray. Lord, um, indeed, you are generous. Um, You are so generous that even after this life, we will be continually um, benefiting from and exploring and enjoying the greatness of your heart for us, the greatness of your generosity for us. So, Lord, thank you for giving up the throne, for leaving that throne for our redemption, that we might come with faith 
to partake of the great gift that you give us here at this table, that we would drink deeply and eat unto satisfaction knowing that our life is in you. And Lord, having received from you, would you, would you grow us in self-forgetfulness? Would you help us to shun the sham glory so that you would get glory? Lord, that not only redounds to our good and makes us rich, but it, it is the, at the very heart of loving our neighbors. It's what Santa Fe needs. Uh, when you don't get glory, people get hurt. Would you get glory in Santa Fe? Would you get glory in this church? Would you make us a people who more and more love to just drink deeply from the wells of salvation? Um, Lord, receiving and, and then from that a fruit growing from our lives which would bring you praise and good in, in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. So, Lord, we thank you that you are doing that. Would you do it so much more as we um, come to this table? In Jesus' name, amen.